Last week I promised that I would continue if we have four weeks of Galatians and Paul. So I'm going to say some things about uh, Galatians, about uh, a topic that is at the center of, of certainly Reformation theology, justification by faith, which is what he's talking about with the Galatians. It begins today. We have two more weeks of Galatians. So I probably today will say some general things about uh, how we understand this and where I think um, uh, we got off the rails with justification by grace through faith and where the current state of, this, of the New Testament scholarship is on this question because it's very important. But I read the reading from 1 Kings this week and I thought I need to preach on this because it's a great reading. It is a great commercial message for why uh, you need to read the Bible selectively and uh, allows me to say some things about how to read the Bible. And it also gives us a perfect example of why uh, issues of justice and equity have been part of our self-understanding as Christian people and uh, the people who brought us uh, the sacred literature that we now call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and how Jesus follows in line with the great prophets of God, because today we have some things uh, about justice and equity in the story of Naboth's vineyard. So I'm going to talk about, about that. So why don't I start, start with that? And also, the Rambo of the Old Testament, Elijah, shows up at one point at the end, and so on. And he's about at the end of his, his time, and his successor, Elisha, will come on the scene in a few chapters after this. So here's the story. There's a man in Jezreel named Naboth, and he owns a vineyard. And the vineyard is right next door to the palace that King Ahab and his wife, Jezebel, We've heard that name, lives in. So Ahab wants to buy the vineyard. He wants the vineyard. So the story begins, and he is pretty, uh, you know, easy going about this. He said, look, I'll trade you for a like piece of property, or I'll buy it. But I want it, I want, want it and uh, I'd like to have it. Um, Naboth says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to sell this vineyard. My, this vineyard has been in my family for uh, generations. Now, what you need to know underneath this is that in Israel and in certain parts of Israel, it was forbidden to sell family-owned property to other people. You had to keep it. So Naboth uh, organizes things legally such that it can never be sold. Ahab is in a blue funk over this, and he goes to the palace, throws himself in bed, turns his face against the wall, and won't eat. So Jezebel says he's in a big sulk. She says, what's the matter? He said, well, I want to buy this vineyard. I want this vineyard, and Naboth won't sell it to me. And so we have the usual interspouse conversation where we have, you know, who's king around here? You know, that's what <laughs> the upshot of this is. <clears throat> she said, you know, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. 
So what happens is that she uh, takes his seal and f essentially forges two letters uh, about this issue and gets two disreputable individuals to come to some uh, ancient Near East version of a public hearing in the town hall and puts Naboth in the middle and has these two guys accuse him of blasphemy and of treason. And so in the assembly, he gets, he gets sentenced to be stoned to death. So they take him out, and they stone him to death. So the word of God comes to Elijah, who is a ways away. And is, he's told, you need to go to Jezreel, and you need to speak to King Ahab now. So Elijah goes to Jezreel and he speaks to the king who sounds to me was trying to avoid Elijah because he finds him in a field or something and he's trying to he said, oh well yeah. you know. and Elijah tells him the score and he said I'm standing right here where, where uh, Naboth is stoned and it, the, the, the ground is stained with his blood and this is where your blood is going to be and this is where the blood of everybody in Israel who's on your side and your family is going to be it's kind of rough, the Old Testament, in certain places, you know. Now, there's a subtext here. You know, Jezebel is not popular uh, with the Israelites because she's from a, a part of the world where the God is not Yahweh, it's Baal. And so she's trying to bring the worship of the Baals into this, and uh, people are upset about that. So Ahab gets very worried and nervous and upset, and he repents on the spot and puts on sackcloth and ashes and then says, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And God said, all right, you're not going to get it, but this is going to happen two generations or, or in a few years from now when you're no longer king. Uh, this issue is not, we're not letting this go. Uh, we don't hear about it this time, but in 2 Kings in chapter 9... Jezebel gets it, and I mean big time. So you need to go to chapter 9, and you need to read Second Kings <laughs> and see what happens, but it's not good. In any case, why is this reading here? This is a reading about uh, justice in Israel and the defense of an ordinary citizen. And let me read to you some things about how to say it better, that say it better than I can. This passage is about the most basic theme of the prophetic literature, the Lord's response to injustice. The concern for justice is expressed in more than one way. The injustice of manipulating the judicial system and the denial of due process. Gee, where have we heard that before? <laughs> The violation of distributive justice by taking more than they need and depriving Naboth of his most basic right, which is his life. The violation of the substance of justice, which rests on the character of Israel's God as just. Covenantal stipulations, law, commandments, traditions about land tenure mean to show how justice will be established among God's people. Ancient Israel does not concern itself much with lines between religious faith, politics, and the legal system. All these institutions rest on the conviction that Yahweh <coughs> seeks justice. 
Consequently, Elijah, like Nathan before him in 2 Samuel, boldly confronts the head of the government with his sin, with a word that accomplishes what it says because it comes from the Lord. So Jesus stands in direct line with the prophets of Israel, and this focus on justice and equity has been part of our self-understanding as the people of God for a long, long time. And I thought I'd just say a word about this because there are a lot of people who think, well, preachers shouldn't talk about politics or social policy. And the fact of the matter is they've been talking about politics and social policy for a long, long time. You know? Reasonable people can disagree about politics and social policy, but it doesn't mean we don't talk about it. And certainly we see that the great prophets of God and the Savior of the world did in fact talk about it. And this reading is in here because it has something to do with the issue of the justice of God, you know? And in a funny way, Paul in Galatians is talking to some degree about the justice of God, but that's really not the right word to use. I want to say some general things about this this week and then get into the details next week because there's more Galatians. But let's remind ourselves. This is one of the two locations in the New Testament where Paul speaks about uh, justification by grace through faith. Uh, it's here and in Romans. And this became the centerpiece of Protestant theology for a long, long time, particularly as the result of Martin Luther, who said, who found his answer. You know, sometimes I think on many fronts, Christian people, and for that matter, people of all religious traditions, have paid a heavy price uh, because of some uh, extraordinary people's own neurotic conflicts. <laughs> Martin Luther didn't believe he could be saved. And while he was told that God took away all our sins, or that God accepted us, forgave us, and loves us unconditionally, he believes that was just a play-acting thing, that in real life, he didn't feel it. And that's true for a lot of us, isn't it? You may get told this, but you don't feel it. You still feel guilty. And so that free-floating anxiety that Luther had, and many 16th century Christian people did, uh, had a deep influence on how Luther understood uh, what to him were the most comforting words he had ever really thought through when he got to being justified not by works but by faith. Now this is uh, an issue that I'm not so sure is that important to a lot of people these days, but um, I've had you know Lutherans and other uh, Protestants tell me that this is the, uh, the theological principle upon which everything stands or falls. Everything. So I'm going to give you a little background today of what's been going on in this whole justification by grace through faith thing uh, in the, the fever swamps of academia. <laughs> in 1977, there was a book written by a New Testament scholar named E.P. Sanders called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. It is not a book for the popular readership. It is an exhaustive study 
of the Judaism of Paul's day, all of its varieties and practices. It gives us enormous insight into the type of Judaism that was around when Jesus was alive, was preaching and teaching. It tells us that, in fact, uh, what we call Judaism was a big stew of the way people understood things and how they understood the law and what the law meant. His thesis in this book, which was an absolute milestone, you still have to read it if you're going to be in, in this discipline, was that the centerpiece of Paul's theology is not salvation by grace through faith, but it is participation in Christ, being in Christ. And he speaks about that today. And that is a, a different thing than salvation by grace through faith. We have been influenced for so long by the Protestant, the magisterial reformation on the continent in the 16th century that we have believed and seen everything that Paul has written and we have uh, agreed with Luther tacitly about the nature of the Judaism of Jesus' day, which he said was a, a religion of keeping the law, a dreary kind of you got to do this or you're just going to be a terrible thing, and it simply couldn't be farther from the truth. It is absolutely wrong. Furthermore, you need to know that uh, Paul believed himself to be justified, but he did not believe he was a sinner. He says in more than one place, I am blameless. There is nobody that can accuse me of not doing exactly what my religious tradition has told me I need to do. I am blameless before God. On the day of judgment, there will be nothing that he can find against me. I have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. The justificate, the righteousness that I feel, the other problem we have is the English language. Uh, I have received because of my belief in Christ. Not because I was a sinner and had to be saved. I, I have done everything I'm supposed to do according to my religious tradition. And most of the people that Paul is talking to uh, are in that category. So I'm going to say more about that this week, next week because it's kind of complicated. But you need to know that part of this issue has been the result of a huge misunderstanding about how people understood the issue of sin and salvation and what it means. The keeping of the law for a Jew was not something that you did in order to be saved. It was to express your thankfulness for being in the covenantal community. You became a member of the community and you kept the law as a sign of being in. Read Psalm 119. I love your law and the keeping of all your precepts. Where did that come from if everybody was going, no, 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 through the law? <laughs> right? So the situation on the ground here in Galatians is this. Paul has come to Galatia sometime probably in the 40s, the early 40s. 
late 30s or 40s. He has established a number of congregations in the newly reorganized province of Galatia by the Romans. In 25 BC, they reorganized and enlarged Galatia. So I'm a subscriber to the northern theory, so I'll say this northern part in Asia Minor. He has a number of congregations, and he has established them. Now, he's come from his home base, which is Antioch. And in Antioch, there is a Christian church that he did not found, that he is part of, that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And in that church, they don't require the Gentiles to keep the law even though the Jews that are there may. So Paul goes to Galatia and he founds these congregations and he says to the Gentile congregations, you do not need to keep the law. It's not part of your tradition. You do not need to keep the law to be saved. <coughs> A Jew is saved not by keeping the law, but by believing in Christ. And you're saved not by keeping the law, but by believing in Christ. It's the same for everybody. So he's trying to drive this home. He leaves Galatia. In his absence, a group of Jewish Christians come in, many from Jerusalem, and they say to these congregations, uh, you know this guy Paul, has he been here? Yes, he's founded, well, uh, you know he's kind of a second-rate apostle. He's not really the real deal. He wasn't one of the original eyewitnesses. He may have told you things, but he's kind of second rate. And the other thing is that he's told you is that you don't need to keep the law. And the fact of the matter is you do. Particularly, all men must be circumcised, and you need to keep the Jewish dietary laws, and you need to keep some of the special holidays. This is something you must do. So, these Galatian Christians write Paul a letter. And they say, listen, we've had these people here, and they've said, first of all, your credentials aren't all in order. And they've said to, I mean, we've said, well, we don't know that. He seemed okay to us. And the other thing he said was, well, uh, we got to keep the law. Now, look, if we have to keep the law, we'll keep the law. But I thought you told us we didn't have to do that. So what about it? Hence the epistle to the Galatians, where he is engaged, first of all, in a substantial defense of his own apostleship and also vehemently defending the idea that if you are a Gentile Christian, you do not need to keep the law. Well, in our own case, that may have something to do with our self-understanding of the practice of religion generally, because most of us aren't in any way stressed over not keeping the Jewish law, <laughs> right? In fact, most of us really don't give a hoop in Jerusalem about justification by grace through faith, if the truth be known, right? But what is important is understand rule-keeping as a kind of measuring up in our religious practice. And somehow, in our own life, if this sort of free-floating anxiety that we feel about things generally, that even if you get told that you, God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgive you, forgives you, you really don't believe it. 
because you don't feel it. You feel guilty. And there's a lot in our, in our own um, family of origin stuff. There's a lot in the whole cultural outlook and milieu that indicates that maybe we don't measure up, you know? We can feel guilty about all kinds of things. And so this kind of runs contrary to uh, the way we think. Another thing you need to know about Paul is one of the reasons he believes this so firmly is that he thought, actually, that Jesus was going to come again in his own lifetime. And so all of the things that he's describing for people to do is, are really short-term. You know, you don't need to do this because Jesus is going to come again. You're going to see that Jesus is both uh, the, the, the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the Gentiles' savior. And he is going to be the one that is described in Isaiah who invites all people to come in so that the people of the covenant are not people who are privileged, but they have special responsibilities and opportunities. And you're going to see this soon. And we begin to see in those letters that are attributed to Paul that are not written by him, this idea and emphasis fading. And certainly in the book of Acts, it will fade. I said last week, you know, there's a story in the book of Acts uh, that uh, tells us that Paul circumcised Timothy. And he circumcised him because Timothy's mother was Jewish. And he comes out of that tradition. So he did it. But he didn't want Titus to be circumcised because he was a Gentile. And so he had a, a falling out with the Jerusalem hierarchy over that question. So he believed this is all going to get sorted very soon. I guess the lesson for today to learn is that um, you don't need to worry about measuring up. If there's any kind of uh, law keeping that you, you think you need to be engaged in or you have told that you need to be engaged in, maybe you need to do some kind of reevaluation of that whole idea. Uh, we need to do more, uh, know some more things about this whole issue of uh, salvation by grace through faith. There's a new, a lot of work that's been done on Greek in the Greek language in the last few years. And uh, there's a translation in this passage um, that they believe, instead of being translated as faith in Christ, as faith of Christ. And it means that we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ himself exhibited before God. And it places a greater stress on the work of Christ on our behalf than on our faith in our own work. You know, there's something about salvation by grace through faith that turns faith into a work. You've got to be faithful. The Catholic perspective on this is this, and many Episcopalians hold this view and have since the Elizabethan settlement. We cannot save ourselves by anything we do. And faith is essential in this process. But faith can never be understood apart from hope and charity. They come together. 
and faith, hope, and charity are the infused virtues that you and I receive at our baptism. The, the strength and the power to be able to do that as we mature in the spirit. And so when you think about works, you need to think about hope and charity. And in fact, it is true that in uh, Protestant theology, they're not really down on works. Some play, play, uh, play them up less than they should. But they don't see that uh, maybe the epistle of James was written for the purpose of making sure that people understood that once you understand that you're saved, you don't just float down a stream of grace. You have to do something to respond to uh, that divine initiative. So laboring to create a society where it is easier for people to be good is a good plan. And it is part of a te the testimony of, of your commitment and your faithfulness. So this week, give thanks for God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Understand that in big and small ways, you are an instrument of the justice of God. You don't have to be a pain in the neck to do this. <laughs> but it is often important that you have the willingness when it's necessary to speak the truth to power and to say that we're moving in a direction where uh, we make present what we believe is, is real about God's relationship with the cosmos. Amen. <laughs>